Uh, with a quick show of hands, how many of you all have heard of the ministry called Young Life? Young Life, the ministry called Young Life. Uh, almost everyone in the room has. Young Life has impacted the lives of three million Americans. And when I say impacted, that means that they went to club, went to campaigners, even went to camp. They're actively involved. Three million Americans. Now, that may not sound like, a mu like much, but the population of the U.S. is roughly like 300 million. So it's impacted about 1% of the U.S. population. Now, here's something. I, I've been on committee. I've been involved with Young Life. Uh, that they're struggling with and wrestling with is this, is just a lack of diversity. They say, if our goal is to reach every junior high and high school student, we need to have more diversity represented. And so this last Friday, I was able to meet with a Greater Houston uh, Young Life group, and they have a ministry now called Developing Emerging Leaders, DEL. And they're saying, if we really want to reach every student in Greater Houston, then we have to equip and train leaders of all different backgrounds. And so it was a chance for me to do that. Now, I get asked regularly, probably like every week, email or call to say, would you come do some consulting on the whole multicultural, multi-ethnic thing in ministry, both in parachurch ministries and church ministries. Um, but here's the thing, even before like, it became the buzzword, a member of this church recently said to me that their child, their adult child was looking for a church in Dallas, and every church they visited, like one of their big taglines was multicultural or multi-ethnic, and it's become like this big thing now in the church world that people are all talking about and aspire to be. But even before 2020, even before I started looking at this like 30 years ago, this was not a vision of a particular pastor, a particular parachurch ministry, but really the vision of God. And here's what I'm going to give you a little preview. Um, we got a way to do our preaching calendar for next year and the year after. And next year, we're going to study Ephesians, the church, uh, the letter to the church at Ephesus, which is all about the church, this mystery that God had. And we just read uh, in the baby dedication and as a call to worship, Ephesians chapter two and Ephesians chapter three. It was God who had this vision of a divided world between Gentile and Jew and bringing them together between slave and free, between rich and poor and bringing them together in one new man is what it says. One new person in the new American standard 2020 version, one new person. And that Greek word there is kainos, not new and improved Judaism, but something totally brand new. And that's what Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 is talking about. God did a mind-blowing thing when he established his church to bring people together. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to see a section of this, Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And as you turn there, let me give you a little context. So this is God's vision or dream or picture from Genesis chapter 12, Isaiah 25, Psalm 46, 10, uh, even in the New Testament, Ephesians, which we're going to look at, into Galatians, into Romans, and now here in Acts. And this is what happened, if you remember. Does anyone here remember someone named Noah in the Old Testament? Noah had three sons, amen? Ham, Shem, and Japheth, right? So this is what happened. Ham, the son, went south after the flood. Shem went east. And then Japheth went north. And so Ham went into Africa. Uh, Shem went into what we know now as the Middle East, the Semitic people, Arabic people. And then Japheth went north. And what do we find in Acts chapter 8? In Acts chapter 8, we see the exact reverse. In Acts chapter 8, who becomes a Christian? With this now, the gospel being for everyone. Who becomes a Christian in Acts chapter 8? Uh, that's chapter 9. Ethiopian eunuch, right, a descendant of Ham, 
becomes a believer. And so God says, be my witness to the ends of the earth. And what happens? There is an African man who becomes a believer, a descendant of Ham. Who becomes a believer in Acts chapter 9? Saul, who's a descendant of Shem, right? And now in Acts chapter 10, we see the descendant of Japheth, who went to probably Slovakia and Europe. And it is this man named Cornelius. Now, here's a misnomer. They often call Cornelius the first Gentile convert. He was not the first Gentile convert, the first non-Jewish convert. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 6, there's a guy named Nicholas, who's a proselyte, who becomes a deacon in the church. He's a believer. So he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile who becomes a believer. So I'm guessing whenever like a preacher says Cornelius is the first Gentile convert, Nicholas is like, what am I, chopped liver? Like four chapters before, like I trusted Jesus, right? And then the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, he trusts Christ. He's also not a Jew as well. But this is what we would call the Gentile Pentecost, the Gentile Pentecost. We see parallels between this and Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon Jewish believers. Now we're going to see the Holy Spirit coming upon Gentile believers. So again, he's not the first Gentile convert. He's probably the third recorded. But this is significant because, again, we see Ham, Shem, and Japheth, now the reverse of God now reaching all nations. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. So stop right there. He is an officer in the Roman army. If you know biblical history, the Romans occupied Israel. They were the colonizers. They were the occupiers. They were the oppressors. And he is a captain. A centurion has the same root as century. He was over 100 men. Most of the Roman officers came from wealthy families and educated families. So here's most likely a very wealthy, educated man who's in the seat of power. But notice this in verse 2. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So this is what he was. He was a God-fearer. In those days, if you were a Jew, you classified non-Jews, Gentiles, into three categories. Either you were just a plain old, straight-up Gentile. Number two, you were a God-fearer. So you said, this God of Israel maybe is the true God, and I'm going to worship him and try to follow him. And there was, lastly, the proselytes. The proselytes are the ones who went all the way. They said, you know what? If I need to get circumcised, I'll get circumcised. If you need to follow the law, the dietary laws, I'll do all that. But he was not to that level, but he was a God-fearer. Verse three, about the ninth hour, so three o'clock in the afternoon, He uh, clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, verse four, and he looked at him intently and became terrified and said, what is it, Lord? That's a joke, y'all. He's Italian cohort. I just, just, just go with me. Brando, my bad, man. I know my bad. Don't be fun Italians, man. I'm sorry. Okay. And he said to him, your prayers and charitable gifts have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier from his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here's the thing. Here's this Cornelius who's in Joppa, a coastal town. And he is praying, and then an angel visits him in a vision and basically says, hey, I want you to send two men to go look for this guy named Simon. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Simon is a Jew. He's a fisherman, most likely not very well educated. So here's, again, a very prominent leader who's now sending for this man named Simon. 
Verse 9, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, so this is about noon, but he became hungry and wanted to eat, but, uh, but um, they were making preparations, uh, but while making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lower by four corners to the ground, and on it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. Verse 13, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And this is Peter's personality, even though he's a believer now. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and clean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleaned or cleansed no longer consider unholy. And apparently Peter forgot the words of Jesus in Mark 7, where he says, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It what comes out of your heart, your mouth that makes you unclean. So he declared all foods to be clean. But God has to remind him. Now, here's the lesson. As he's having this vision and seeing this sheet fall from the sky with lobster and shrimp and bacon and ham. Uh, let me see. I wrote a whole list of good foods on there. Pork chops, <laughs> cheeseburgers, catfish, and oysters, right? I know we're getting close to lunch, so I won't keep going on. These are the foods that he would not have eaten. But the illustration, God is the master illustrator. God is not using an illustration to say, now you can eat these foods. What he's really trying to show him is preparing him to meet with Cornelius to say, not just food clean and unclean, but now how you deal with people clean and unclean. It used to be that Gentiles who you were unclean because they may have touched a dead body. They may have eaten something unclean. So you stayed away from them. The Romans thought they were superior to the Jews because again, we occupied y'all. We colonized y'all. If y'all were so amazing, then what happened? Y'all laid down. And the Jews thought they were superior to the Romans and the Gentiles because they were the people of God. And now what God is doing to Peter is saying, you know what? All these things that would divide you, he says, what I've cleansed no longer call unclean. He's not talking just about food. He's using an illustration at lunch when he's hungry to talk about people and ministry. Verse 16, this happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Verse 17, now Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who had seen, have been sent by Cornelius had asked direction to Simon's house. And they appeared at the gate and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. Verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Notice this, who sent the three men? According to Acts 10, the early part, who sent the three men? Was it Cornelius? But look at what verse 20 says. God says, I have sent them myself. And so it's God sovereignly working through Cornelius, sending these three men to find Peter. Peter went down to the men and said, behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well-spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel sent for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So I invited them in and gave them lodging. So this is what's going on. <clears throat> the angel appears to Cornelius. Peter has a vision. Peter hears from these three men. God is always at work around you. Because before this time, Peter had no idea who Cornelius was. He had no idea what God was doing. So there's point number one. God is always at work. We only have to be aware and available. God is always at work. 
Here was the steps. Here was Cornelius who looked at the Jews around him and perhaps saw some things and said, you know what? The God they worship, the God they serve, I want to serve that God as well. He was a God-fearer, but he was not a Christian. He had not heard the gospel yet. He was not a Christian. He probably kept the law in some regards, probably kept the Sabbath in some regards. He gave to the poor. He gave charitable alms. He did those things, but he was not a Christian. But then in the uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, as he's praying, the angel appears and says, you know what? Go send for this person called Peter. And what happens? He sends three men to go find Peter. These three men go. At the same time, Peter is praying around noon. And here's someone who's been taught all his life, stay away from Gentiles, stay away from Gentiles. Don't go in the house of a Gentile. We're better than them. They're less than us. Matter of fact, the term that they would call Gentiles was what in the Old Testament? I mean, the New Testament. What do the Jews call Gentiles? They call them dogs. And that wasn't a term of endearment like we used to like, what's up, dog? Not like that. <laughs> it meant you're lower than, you're dirty. And so there's this reorientation that's going on. So God is constantly at work, always at work around us. I'm telling you right now, there is somebody at your work, your workplace, where you work, God is working in their heart right now. God's working in their heart right now. They may have just gone to the doctor on Friday and gotten a diagnosis for cancer. And they're grasping and reaching for hope. There's somebody right now that, you know what, maybe uh, this weekend went to a family reunion and maybe their uncle prayed and they heard something about Jesus or the gospel for the very first time. And so God is always at work around us. We only have to be aware and available. But here's the problem. Problem number one is we're not aware and we're not available. Even when God makes us aware and says, hey, this is what I want you to do. This is a person I want you to take out to lunch. Put that project down and go talk to this person. Text this person. We say, God, I'm too busy. I've got this going on. I've got to get this done. I've got to get to this meeting. Or we're not aware. Here's a question. Have you ever heard of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon? Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Anybody heard of that? Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. The Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is this. When the Aggies lose in football, you don't despair because UT lost as well. That's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. <laughs> and Baylor won and TCU lost, right? That's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Totally lying. That's not what it is. This is what the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is. If you have said, hey, you know what, for, for Christmas this year, I'm going to buy my mom a coach purse. I'm going to spend some extra money to get my mom a brand new coach purse. She loves like luxury purses. I'm going to buy my mom a brand new coach purse. And this is what happens. This is a Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. When you have in your mind, I'm going to buy my mom a coach purse, what happens to you? What do you begin to notice? You go to church and you notice every woman with what? A coach purse. You go to work, you go to a restaurant and you notice everyone carrying a coach purse. If you're about to buy a new car, you're like, I'm dead set on getting a new Mercedes Benz SUV, this color, whatever, this model. What happens when you drive to work tomorrow morning? You see that SUV. That's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. That's when you think of something, maybe for the first time, now you see it everywhere. And that's what happens here. When you say, God, I'm going to set my mind on looking and being aware for opportunities. Because God, I really believe that you're at work around me, in my family, at work, in my neighborhood, with the other soccer parents. I believe that you're working. And what I'm going to do is now I want to be aware. So I, I see it. There it is. How did I miss it? I see it. There it is again. I see it. That's what happens to Peter. Peter is praying to God and he says, God, would you use me? I'm available to you. I'm aware of what you're doing. God says, you know what? I'm sending these men to come to you. Go with them. And he says in um, uh, verse 
23, the very end. Now, on the next day, he got ready. That word again, like last week, he got up. He got up. God tells him to get up and go with them. He got up and went away with them. And some of the other brothers from Joppa come to him. So some other Christian brothers, former Jews or uh, believers from a Jewish background from Joppa come to him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and he called them together, his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. Now, can you imagine? It would just probably freak me out if that happened. Imagine tomorrow morning, if your CEO of your company, who now has been asking questions about Jesus, wanting to know about Jesus, and they know that you're a follower of Jesus, a loyal, devoted follower of Jesus, if that man or that woman came and fell at your feet wanting more. That's what happens here. Here's someone in the seat of power, the colonizer, the, the one who's now oppressing, who's occupied Israel. And he falls at his feet because he desires to know more. Verse 26, but Peter helped him up saying, stand up. He basically says, I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I too am just a man. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. Now again, an Orthodox Jew would not enter the house of a Gentile because they may have some unclean foods there. They may have touched a dead body there. They have been unclean. They would never have entered into the house of a Gentile, a non-Jew. Verse 28, and here's, here's the thing. When God saves you, when God saves you, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man, any woman is in Christ, behold, he is a new creature in Christ. But here's the thing about that. You do not lose your personality, right? If you're like a big extrovert and you're like a whatever, like a big, you know, wild kind of guy, extreme kind of guy, like, you know what? You get saved, now God is going to use that. He's going to redeem that. And remember Peter, Peter was a very extreme guy. He would often have Nike sandwiches because he'd be regularly found putting his foot in his mouth. Amen. And now that he's a Christian, that hasn't changed because look what he says. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to someone's house for the first time, I'm going to be like, wow, this is a really nice house. Thanks for inviting me over. Thanks for having me over. Do you want me to take my shoes off? Like, what do you want me to do? Like, thank you for inviting me. Look what he says in verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or, or, or associate with or visit a foreigner, and yet God has shown me that I am not to call any person unholy or unclean. Verse 29, that is why I came without even raising objection when I was sent for, so I asked, for what reason did you send me? So this is what happens. Peter comes in and says, I really don't want to be here. Right? Because I, I'm a Jew and you guys are Gentiles and non-Jews and we know that we're not supposed to associate together. We're not supposed to be friends together. I really don't want to be here. But you know, God like twists my arm like, okay, God, I'll go. Because he's still growing. And if you remember Galatians 2, there's a time when Peter is eating with his Jewish Christian brothers and then the Gentile, or Gentile brothers, when the Jews come in, he basically distances himself. It's this misunderstanding of the gospel about how the gospel changes relationships and how Onesimus and Philemon, slave owner and slave, are now brothers in Christ. And so he says, I'm coming to you even though I really, there's all these walls, all these social things, all these cultural things, superior, inferiority, inferiority uh, colonizer, colonizer, oppressor, oppressed, but I'm coming to you. Now, what do you want me to talk to you about? So again, he had to get up and go. Here's point number two. When God moves on your heart. And when he says, this is where I'm working, I want you to be available. I want you to be aware, get up and go. That's point number two. The problem is we don't get up and go. But Peter, he actually got up and went. Now again, in the Old Testament, we find all these things about unclean and clean. God has now said to him, whether it's food, but most importantly, people, there's no longer clean and unclean. 
You are now to minister, love, and share the gospel to the Gentiles because the title of the sermon is the gospel is for everyone. God has a vision for a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, his body, his family, and the means by which is the gospel and the gospel is for everyone. And if we're honest with ourselves, as we look at this, there were not only the law that they looked at about clean and unclean, but for many Jews, they were also taught by parents Stories like this, if you remember the Romans, the Romans, if they had a baby, baby girl or baby boy, most often a girl, if they did not want the baby, they would leave it out in the wilderness, out in the forest, and let that baby die of what? Exposure, exposure. Did y'all say like world history? Y'all remember that? Exposure. And what did the early church do? The early Christians would find those babies and bring those babies in. They would adopt them as orphans. They'd bring them in because they were really genuinely pro-life. And so this was what was taught to many Jews, that the Gentiles, the Romans, would let their babies die of exposure. They would take those baby carcasses and bury them under the house. And so the moment you step foot on that floor, that carpet or that, that floor, you're stepping on something unclean and now you are unclean. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe perhaps we've been taught those things as well by our parents or grandparents, whether it's about other people groups, other ethnicities, about superiority, inferiority, or we've got this and we're gonna be paternalistic and we're gonna help these poor people out. Perhaps you were taught some of those things as well. And that could be a hindrance or a barrier to you ministering and sharing the gospel to people that may not look like you. I was the co-director of a day camp at the oldest black church in Dallas. New Hope Baptist Church started in 1873 by former slaves. Co-director at this camp, we'd start every morning with prayer. We'd end every day with prayer. On this day, uh, we were closing in prayer. There were about 50 kids, and I was here as a co-director. The other director was on the other side. We were all holding hands about to pray. And the other co-director, Andre Rogers, my good friend, says this. He said, oh, guys, guys, hey, everyone, everyone, listen up. Icky just got engaged. Minister Stoneman just got engaged. He just got engaged. So let's, let's celebrate that. So all the kids are clapping. Oh, he got engaged. Congratulations. And so then the boy next to me, his name is Graylin. Graylin says, oh, is she Asian like you? And I said, no, Graylin, she's black like you. <laughs> and with a straight face, this is what Graylin said to me. That can't be. And I said, why not? He says, because my mommy and daddy told me that black people should only marry black people because when black people marry people who are not black, their babies die because their blood won't mix. And I said, what? He says, yeah, you and your wife can't have babies because your blood won't mix and your babies are going to die. And I said, that's not true. That's not true at all. And he's confused. He had this look like, well, my mom and dad said black people marry black people. If black people marry not black people, their babies die in the womb because their blood won't mix. And I said, Graylin, that's not true. I said, you marry whoever loves Jesus like you do. So then we prayed, and then we went on with our day. The next morning, 8.30 in the morning, mom is there with Graylin and Gavin. Their two brothers looked almost identical. Graylin and Gavin come up. They're dressed always alike. They come to camp. Mom is in tears, and she says, can I speak to you? And I said, yes. And she said, hey, um, I just need to confess something, ask for forgiveness. We did teach our boys that black people only marry black people. Because, you know, the social, the stigma stuff between interracial marriage and dating and stuff, we didn't want them to go through that. And so we just told them, yes, black people only marry black people because if you do marry somebody outside of, uh, who's not black, your babies are going to die. But we've told them last night that that is not true, that you marry anybody who loves Jesus Christ. That's the key thing. You marry the person God leads you to marry. 
Now, here's the thing. Here's the redemptive thing. Because as growing up, being a Japanese man, my mom told me certain things about African-Americans. And when I got engaged, when I started dating Tara and married to Tara, my mom objected. She didn't want me to marry a black woman. But here's the redemptive aspect of that. It was my wife who led my mom to the Lord. Amen. So this is what happened. My wife and I are planning our wedding day, right? So we're like bridesmaids, groomsmen, who's going to sing, who's going to officiate, who's going to do this stuff. We got, you know, the flower girls and we're like, oh, who are we going to get as a ring bearer? I said, let's get Graylin. And so here's Graylin, this boy who said to me, you can't marry somebody who's black. Black people only marry black people who became our ring bearer. And I remember her, his mom got so into it. So she said, Pastor Soma, like, um, what are you going to wear? I said, we got a three button tuxes with like a, a forest green vest. She bought this little six-year-old, seven-year-old boy a three-button suit. So imagine you're like a little seven-year-old boy. You got a three-button suit. It's clean, too. Three-button suit <laughs> with this forest green vest, right? And I still remember vividly. Ten minutes before the wedding, we're all getting ready, taking our cues and stuff. And the mom says this. She says, Graylin, now this is a very important day for Ikey and Tara. This is like once in a lifetime. He's like, yes, ma'am. And now I want you, like, this is a very special moment. Everyone's going to be watching. They're going to videotape this. So this is a very special day. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am. And then she said this. Now, boy, when you get up there, you hold that ring and you don't move a muscle or else you're going to get the whooping of your life. So this is great in our wedding. So here, Peter has heard things like this growing up, which would have been an obstacle and a barrier for God accomplishing his vision of, again, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, of this multi-ethnic, multicultural church. And we see this in the New Testament. There's not a single church in the New Testament that's divided along cultural or ethnic lines. There's just the church. The closest thing would probably be the church in Jerusalem. But even there, if you remember, there's Nicholas. He's a Gentile. And it was a multicultural church because they're Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, different languages, and yet they were just one church. And so he says, hey, I normally wouldn't come, but God has said to me, you need to go. Verse 30, Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining clothing, an angel. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your charitable gifts have been remembered before God. Therefore, send some men to Joppa, invite Simon, who's also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent them uh, to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear everything that you have been commanded by the Lord. So here's this opportunity. God has laid it out. God is always at work around us. He's just asking us to be aware and available. And Peter says, I'm aware, I'm available. I won't let these cultural and ethnic things get in the way. I'm going to go. He goes. And Cornelius says, all right, now what's the message? We're ready to hear it. He set it up. God set this up. Verse 34. Underline this. Opening his mouth. Opening his mouth. Friends, you have to open your mouth. You have to open your mouth. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Ah, with God, there's no discrimination. There may be discrimination in the world. There may be discrimination in corporate America. But with God, there's no partiality. There's no discrimination. But in every nation, every ethne, every ethnic group, the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, underline this, he is Lord of all. He basically says, Jesus is king. You yourselves know the thing that happened throughout Judea, starting with Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus and Nathers, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were pressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things that he did both in the country of the Jews and to Jerusalem, or in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he be revealed, not to all the people, but to witnesses who had been chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, and he ordered us to preach to the people and to testify solemnly that this is the one who's been appointed by God, underline that as judge of the living and the dead. So he emphasizes that he's Lord, he's king, he's also judge of the living and the dead. Uh, verse 43, all the prophets testify of him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Underline that word believes there in verse 43. So Cornelius says to him, all his household, Peter, what's this message you have for us? And he preaches this gospel that is for everyone, every Gentile, every Jew, every rich man, every poor man, every slave, every free. He says, I'm going to preach to you the gospel. He says, Jesus is king and Jesus is judge. And by believing in him, you can have forgiveness of sins. Now notice what happens here in verse 44. It says nothing of them believing, but we can assume this, that they believe. The moment they heard it, Peter never has to give like an altar call or have them raise their hands. They believe. They hear it and believe it because God has set this up. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, just like in Acts 2 with the Jewish believers. All the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles for they're hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God, just like in Acts chapter two. There were Jews from all around the world who had come and now they're hearing them in their own language. So most likely these Romans, these Gentiles are now speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew. And the Hebrew Jews, the Jewish Jews, the Jewish believers are like, this is amazing. How are these Romans speaking and worshiping God in Aramaic or Hebrew? And they said, it's because the spirit has come upon them. Verse 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were asked him to stay on for a few days. Like we looked at last week, there was the physical reality baptism of what happened spiritually. They had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They were regenerated. They were made new and the Holy Spirit indwelt them and filled them. And because of that, they said, hey, what prevents them from being baptized? Let's baptize them as a physical picture of what's already happened in them spiritually. Here's point number three. Open your mouth and trust God for the outcome. You have to open your mouth. When you're aware of God at work, at your work, in your community, in your neighborhood, with your family, when you go to Thanksgiving, you pray, God, if you're doing something in my family, would you make me aware of that? I'm available to you. And when you do, you go to that family member, that uncle, that aunt, that grandparent, who's always been a churchgoer, but you know they're not a Christian. And you say, I sense God is telling me to get up and go. And when you get up and go, you have to open your mouth. And when I say open your mouth, not talking about the Longhorns, not talking about football, not talking about the economy, to talk to them, not even about politics, talk to them about the king and judge, Jesus Christ, who loved them and gave his life for them. And say, by believing in him, you can have forgiveness for all your sins, past, present, and future, so that you can have an eternal relationship with God. You have to open your mouth. But here's the thing, God has only called us to be the messenger 
We can't control the response. So you leave the outcome up to God. But here in this picture, we see as Peter's preaching, he says, whoever believes has forgiveness of sins. The family members, the others who are there believe and the Holy Spirit comes on them. Salvation is a work of God. We only need to be faithful in proclaiming, opening our mouths and sharing the good news. Here's the thing. Jesus King, Jesus Judge, when we talk about the kingdom, we're talking about the comprehensive rule of Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to be a disciple, to increasingly and intentionally submit to his kingship, to him being the CEO, the president, the mayor, the governor, the, uh, the, the king of your life, the Lord of your life. That's what it means. And so I hear this regularly nowadays because kingdom talk is everywhere, is we talk about doing kingdom work. So someone says, you know what? I do this homeless ministry. We feed them. We clothe them. We're doing kingdom work. You know what? After Hurricane Harvey, we're mucking out homes and fixing drywall. We're doing kingdom work. It can't be kingdom work, y'all, unless we're talking about the king. It's just good work that we do. I'm not saying don't, don't do those things. And maybe that's set enough for you to talk about the king, but we have to talk about the king. We have to mention King Jesus, the one who came to give them eternal life and abundant life through faith in his name, through submitting to him. So here's my big idea. It ain't kingdom work if you ain't telling people about the king. Verse 36, he says he's Lord of all. He's king. In verse 42, he's the judge of the living of the dead. He says if we're not and we're just doing good works, we get up and go and we don't open our mouths. We become like the old timey movies that have picture and no sound. We may be there. They may see us. We may be doing good works, but we have to open our mouths and verbally and vocally say to them, there is a God in heaven who loves you, but it's your sin that gets in the way. But here's the solution. There's a king that came. He came riding on the back of a donkey. His name is Jesus. He loves you and gave his life for you. And simply by placing your faith in him, you can have a relationship with God and be forgiven for all your sins. You've got to open your mouth. If not, we're just that silent movie. And that's what happens with Peter. So here we're beginning to see. You shall be my witnesses. Y'all, all of us in here will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Even to those who may be think they're superior to us, even those that we may think are inferior to us. He says to everybody, the gospel is for everyone. And between now chapter 10 and on, actually eight and on, we're going to see the expansion of the gospel, the promoting and preaching of the gospel, the expansion of Christ's kingdom through his apostles. And God is doing that work still today. So my friends, when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to lunch today, there may be that server that comes and takes your order that God is already at work in their life. Their boyfriend just broke up with them. Or their girlfriend just broke up with them. And when they're not taking your order behind closed doors, they're in tears. And they're looking for a relationship that will last. And that relationship that will last and endure is not with a person. It's with Jesus Christ. Back to kingdom talk, and I'll wrap up. Um, when my mom passed away, when she went home to be with the Lord, uh, in Japan, they have a set of national records almost like our U.S. census. And so when my mom passed away, went home, be the Lord, I had to go to the Japanese consulate here in Houston to fill out some paperwork. Now here's what the consulate is or an embassy is. A consulate or an embassy is this, is a little bit of another country in another country. Like, so the Japanese consulate is a little bit of Japan here in America. That's what the consulate is. This is the U.S. embassy in Nairobi, Kenya. If you're like in Kenya doing ministry, doing missions work, and you're like, hey, I need to have a little bit of taste of what home again, you'd go to the embassy and you get America again. And friends, that's what God has called 
the church to be. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what Paul calls us. We're ambassadors. And the church is an embassy. We're a, we're a consulate. So if someone who's not a believer yet, someone at your workplace, someone in your community wonders, I wonder what life is like in this Colossians 3, for your home is now in heaven. I wonder what life is like in heaven. They would simply have to look at you and as you're submitted to Jesus Christ, say, ah, that's what it's like. I wonder what it's like in terms of uh, uh, marriage. What does marriage look like in the kingdom? What does singlehood look like in the kingdom? What does an employee look like in the kingdom? They hopefully simply only have to look to you as an ambassador, as part of this greater thing known as the embassy and say, ah, I see it. They see our world divided racially and politically and culturally. They see our world divided and they say, I wonder what it looks like in this embassy known as the church. And they would see people from a diverse group of backgrounds worshiping and serving together, calling each other brother and sister in Christ, even though they may vote differently, even though they may come from different backgrounds because of Jesus Christ. That's what God has called the church. Not, this, not just this church, but the church, capital C, to be, we're an outpost. If people wonder, what is heaven like? What is God's kingdom like? They simply have to look at us and say, ah, it's different there. This is the consulate. This is the embassy. And all these folks here are ambassadors. They represent a different king and a different kingdom. And so again, friends, tomorrow morning, this afternoon, are you aware of what God's doing around you? Are you available to him? God, I'm available to you. And when God says, go, get up and go, you get up and go. And when God says, open your mouth, you open your mouth. And it could be you sharing the gospel. It could be you sharing your testimony. It could be you reading Matthew, uh, 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 I'm sorry, John 3. It could be you reading Ephesians chapter 2. Aware and available, get up and go. Open your mouth. Let's pray. God, we're in this very exciting section of scripture in Acts as we see the expansion of a predominantly Jewish church to now we see Genesis 12, your heart for the nations. Psalm 4610, your desire to be exalted amongst the nations. Your desire for the temple to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Your desire for us to make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnos, all the ethnicities and peoples. So God, I pray that we would be aware the Bader-Meinhof principle. God, we would pray, God, I want to see you at work. I want to see where you're working and that we'd see it all around us and that we'd be available to you. Here I am, Lord, send me. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Here I am, Lord, send me. And that we would get up and go. Maybe it means just walking across the hall. Maybe it means just inviting that coworker to lunch. Maybe it means just calling up that friend and that neighbor. Maybe it means this Thanksgiving sitting next to this person at the dinner table. And God, that we would open our mouths and boldly and lovingly and graciously share about our King and Judge, Jesus Christ, who believing in him offers forgiveness of sin and eternal relationship with you. So God, would you give us that, God? We ask you, would you give us that? And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, prayer team, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come on up to my left and right. If you need prayer for anything, perhaps you're already there. You're aware and available, and you keep sensing God's prompting in your heart to reach out to this one person, this one family member. Even though may, this person may look different than you, have a different background, but you just sense that prompting. Prayer team's available. 
We also want to pray this. I've talked to a lot of people, men and women, parents of young children, just like baby dedication, who are wrestling with anxiety, just a lot of anxious parents wrestling with worry about the future. If that's you, you can come up here as well. Also on the app, uh, we have an app. If you want to send your prayer request through the app, we pray as elders every Thursday morning at 6.15. We'd love to join you in prayer as well. So however you choose, this is your time to respond to what God's doing in your heart.